Welcome to the Northbound Wealth Podcast. All opinions expressed by me, my co-hosts, or my guests are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Northbound Wealth Management, LLC. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as personalized recommendations or fiduciary advice. It is not intended to provide and should not be relied upon for any investment, accounting, legal, and or tax advice, or as a solicitation to offer or buy any securities. As a reminder, all investments include the risk of loss and past performance is not indicative of future results. Clients of Northbound Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey everybody, this is Brent Foster, founder and CEO of Northbound Wealth Management. Today is February 13th. This is your weekly market insights. Headlined, mixed feelings and mixed earnings. Stocks drifted lower as a week of mixed earnings reports and resurgent worries over Fed monetary policy dragged on investor sentiment. The Dow Jones Industrial Average slipped 0.17%, while the S&P 500 declined 1.11%. The NASDAQ Composite Index lost 2.41%. The MSCI EF Index, which tracks developed overseas stock markets, dipped 0.30%. What does that mean for the Dow? The Dow closed at 33,869. Year to date, that's up 2.18%. The NASDAQ closed at 11,718 or 718. That's up 11.96% year to date. MSCI EFA index closed at 2,112. That's up 8.68% for the year. S&P 500 closed at 4,090, which is up 6.54% for the year. The 10-year treasury note closed at 3.74%. That's up 21 basis points for the week and is down around 14 basis points for the year. So the, the recent market rally stalled, basically. Stocks struggled last week, weighed down by rising bond yields, a firming U.S. dollar, geopolitical tensions, and generally unimpressive corporate earnings reports. Perhaps the most consequential overhang was the potential direction of monetary policy. Initially, traders were relieved by comments by Fed Chair Jerome Powell earlier in the week that he had not stuck to a more aggressive strategy following the strong employment report released after the FOMC meeting. The relief was short-lived, however, as anxieties over future monetary policy resurfaced, exacerbated by comments by one Fed governor who suggested restrictive monetary policy would be necessary for a few years to tamp down inflation. So Powell just repeats himself. Investors were particularly eager on Tuesday to hear Powell's first comments following the strong employment report the previous Friday. The concern was that the surprise job number would change Powell's outlook coming out of the last FOMC meeting. Powell instead repeated his post-FOMC meeting remarks which were that a disinflationary trend was underway and there remained a distance to travel before the measures taken tamed inflation. The Fed would be data dependent in making future rate decisions. Powell also pointed out that the robust job growth showed why it might take so long to reduce inflation to the Fed's target level. This week, key economic data, Tuesday, the Consumer Price Index, Wednesday, Retail Sales, Thursday, Jobless Claims, Producer Price Index, the Housing Starts, Friday, Index of Leading Economic Indicators. This week, notable companies reporting earnings, Tuesday, the Coca-Cola Company, Zoetis, 
Marriott International, Wednesday, Cisco Systems, Shopify, and Albemarle. Thursday, Applied Materials, the Southern Company, and Friday, John Deere, for those of you who are in the farming Midwest. So tax tip, two types of IRS volunteer programs. Every year, IRS certified volunteers help people file their tax returns accurately. The volunteer opportunity is perfect for people who want to learn more about tax preparation need to earn continuing education credits or want to give back to their community. The IRS offers the Volunteer Income Tax Assistance Program the ta and the Tax Consulting for the Elderly Program. VITA or uh, TCE offers free help to people who generally earn $60,000 or less, people with disabilities and limited English speaking taxpayers. TCE is mainly for people 60 and older, although the program focuses on tax issues unique to seniors. Most taxpayers can get free assistance. This information is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized tax advice. We suggest that you discuss your specific tax issues with a qualified tax professional. And again, this tip was adapted from irs.gov. Market and volatility commentary. Rates, equity, disconnect, geopolitics, in Volmageddon 2.0. That was a recent note by JP Morgan's Marco Kalanovic, Brom Kaplan, and Peng Cheng. They're all CFAs and PhDs. Basically, this note was just released. Since the last Fed meeting, the two-year bond yield is up 60 basis points. After all, it is the bond market moving toward the Fed rather than the Fed towards the bond market. However, equity markets are rallying and the prevailing sentiment is of exuberance and greed. For instance, the AAII percent bulls is the highest since 2021, and AAII's percent bears is the lowest since 2021. And that's the Association of Individual Investors. The CNN Fear Greed Index is at extreme greed and financial conditions, for example, as measured by BFCI US, are the least restrictive in a year. This divergence between equity and bond markets is odd as the main premise of the recent equity rally was not just the Fed cutting interest rates in the second half, but also a soft landing. Leadership of equity markets has also been upside down given the yields moving higher. In fact, it is the lower quality long duration segments such as unprofitable and speculative tech that's been at the forefront of the rally while short duration segments lagged. There is an old adage, quote, don't fight the Fed, end quote. But this behavior is not just fighting the Fed, but also taunting the Fed with crypto, meme stocks, and unprofitable companies responding best to Fed communications. Retail activity or volumes are near record high levels with over 20% of all volume coming from retail orders. By the way, guys, that's not a good sign. How big is the uh, this bond equity divergence based on historical regressions? The move in the two-year interest rates since the Fed meeting should result in a 5 to 10% sell-off in the NASDAQ, figures 1 and 2, which is actually up about 3% since. And for high beta tech, the divergence is much larger. However, this divergence cannot go much, go up much further in our view and may revert. The risk-reward of holding bonds at this level of short-term yields looks better than equities or earnings yield than any time since the great financial crisis. For example, the spread between the two-year and, and equity earnings yield 
is at the lowest point since 2007. This relationship is not just theoretical, but often enforced by pensions selling opportunistically at month end or in the context of defined benefit plans rebalances. Of course, bond yields are only one of the drivers of equity risk premium, but recent corporate earnings don't explain the tech rally either. So, wow, what a note. That should uh, give everybody some pause because Marco is basically the number one institutional investor and is in the Institutional Investor Hall of Fame for having 10 consecutive years at the number one top spot. The guy does has been given like the, the uh, nickname, if you will, of a phrase called the man that moves markets, or I think they call him Gandalf even. So anyway, food for thought as you are looking at trading and investing. Um, might want to think about your strategy and what you're doing. Uh, and if you have any questions about that, obviously Northbound Wealth Management would be happy to help. You can give us a call at 317-399-1107. And on to the next segment. Thanks. Do so the New York Stock Exchange McKellen Summation Index Ratio. We've got that with the full stochastic and uh, just a daily chart uh, to try to help us figure out with uh, S&P 500 overlay. And it looks like um, the the ratio adjusted EOD on it is uh, trending down over in on both the full stochastic uh, oscillators on the daily. Let's look at the weekly. Looks like we're in overbought territory. So we are kind of weakening. We'll see what happens with the stock market here over the next couple of weeks. Today is an up day though. Uh, the market's seen, you know, by midday, uh, NASDAQ goes, I think it's up 1% or nearly 1%. Um, I'm looking at the S&P and the NASDAQ kind of retaking that 200-day moving average, trading above it. We'll see how long it stays up there. And um, yeah, we'll be tracking that, you know, as we go through the next four to six weeks into the infamous month of March. The VIX is trading down, obviously, because the market is up. So you're having the the VIX kind of sit quietly in there, but um, but at any point in time could be triggered and see a spike. The Dow Jones is doing fairly well, also trading above its uh, 50 day and 200 day moving average. I like to really look at the S&P 500 though, instead of the Dow, the NASDAQ is doing well. Also, uh, of course, above the 200 day and the 50 day, we just got to see it hold and retest those levels and then make a near term decision on how much staying power that this recent rally has. I don't think it does because rates are going to continue to go up and that's going to be a problem story for the stock market. So um, stay tuned for more data on the stock market here in just a second. Where have all the $200,000 houses gone? This was a post uh, Ben Carlson put up on February 10th really like it. And basically what he's saying is um, there's <laughs> new homes priced below $200,000 have gone from 
more than 40% of the market in 2010 to 0% today. That's very notable. And I think we all can agree and see that going on all over the place. If you just try to search, try to find a quality house or uh, for 200 grand, you're, you're, it's going to be very difficult to find. At the same time, sales of homes are going for half a million dollars or more has shot up from less than 10% to nearly 40% of the new homes market. <laughs> Interesting. I understand why first-time homebuyers are so angry. This isn't great for all the millennials out there looking to buy their first home. So why aren't we building affordable housing anymore? Well, the most obvious reason would be that housing prices are up 40% nationally since the onset of the pandemic. Sprinkle a little in of inflation in, it would make sense at the floor. In new home prices has been raised, but there's more to it than that. The Federal Reserve has new home price data going back to 2000. So I decided to take this all the way back to get a better sense of the trends uh, this century. So <clears throat> it's not only the $200,000 home and under segment that has fallen off a cliff. New homes going for $300,000 or less now just make up 11% of the pie, down from 80%. Think about that. It used to be 80% of the market, $300,000 homes and down. Now it's only 11% of the market. Of all the new home sales uh, in the year 2000, new homes being sold for $750,000 and up has gone from less than 1% to more than 10% this century. The sweet spot for builders is now in the $300,000 to $750,000 range, which makes up more than 80% of new homes sold in the most recent data. One of the big reasons for the shift is the fact that we simply don't build enough houses anymore. Here's a look at the same data for new homes, but instead of looking at the proportion of homes sold by a price point, this shows the actual number of new homes sold over time. It's a fascinating chart, really, it's, it's good. We overbuilt in the 2000s housing bubble, but that led to more than a decade of underbuilding ever since then. I've mentioned that on the podcast uh, and also in client meetings for years. This data is like, it seems like the builders are, are building about five to 6% below demand on purpose since the Great Recession. So there was a brief spike during the pandemic housing craze, but that has abated with mortgage rates shooting higher thanks to Jay Powell tamping that down. Tastes have changed as well. Drive through any neighborhood in this country where houses were built in the 1950s, 60s, or 70s. And the first thing you notice is how much smaller those homes were. Uh, in his book, The 50s, David Halberstam documents how the housing market played a huge role in the rise of the suburbs following World War II. These houses were not McMansions. Levittown was an astonishing success from the very beginning. The first Levitt house could not have been simpler. It had four and a half rooms, was designed with a young family in mind. The lots were 60 by 100 feet. And Bill Levitt was proud of the fact that the house took up only 12% of the lot. The living room was 16 by, or the living room was 12 by 16 feet. There were two bedrooms and one bathroom. A family could expand the house by converting the attic or adding on to the outside. The house was soon redesigned with the kitchen in the back so that mothers could watch their children in the yard. These houses were like 
1300 square feet. I don't, I don't even want to tell you how much they cost. So even in the 1970s, the median size of a new home in the United States was just 1,525 square feet. Today, it's more like 2,500 square feet. Those smaller houses had fewer bathrooms, fewer bedrooms, and fewer amenities. There are reasons for this sea change in housing characteristics. Part of it is the fact that many people simply want bigger houses with more amenities these days. We all want our open floor plans to entertain huge bedrooms and bathrooms and more storage space for all the stuff we buy. I blame HGTV. It's also true that home builders aren't incentivized to build starter homes anymore. In the 1950s, after everyone got back from the war, the government made it a point to help out the troops and their families. <clears throat> the government actually backstopped the home builders so they would be comfortable taking on the risk of building so many new houses. Our elected officials today don't seem to care at all that much about rapidly rising housing costs caused by the low supply of homes. Regulations, red tape, and lack of uh, government action have made it a giant pain in the rear end to build new homes. It's not worth it to jump through all the hoops to build starter homes, so home builders have moved up market to McMansions. If you're in the market for a new home, I'm sure you've been waiting for years for prices to come down. Maybe higher mortgage rates will help. But unless there is some government action in the federal and local levels to make it easier to build more, the days of new homes going for 300000 or less might be a thing of the past. Michael and I talked about some reasons for the death of the starter home and much more on this week's Animal Spirits video. So uh, Ben Carlson and Michael Batnick um, have their own podcast called Animal Spirits, and they have their own like YouTube where they talk about this stuff. I like them. They do a great job. <clears throat> and this is one article I felt like sh which should be highlighted and it is an issue in our nation. And I, I hope that we can all kind of come together so that home ownership is something that can come back versus just being completely dead at this point. And um, around our neck of the woods here in central Indiana, I'm looking at uh, Hamilton County and specifically, and man, there are so many apartment buildings going up. It's insane. Uh, multifamily, all that stuff. And I just can't help but think all these families are going to be working and paying rent leasing and never owning anything of, of, of equity as far as real estate is concerned. And I'm concerned about that. Um, so, you know, maybe we ought to rethink what we're doing here. Um, I know that uh, big money out there is enjoying the benefits of, <clears throat> of multifamily and, and, uh, and controlling the housing market, which uh, inevitably controls you guys. So anyway, something to think about as uh, we move forward and look at uh, the next generation of, of millennials and, and people coming into the market. I wanted to sneak this article in. It's the Daily Upside uh, on Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day out there to my wife and also uh, for my family and everybody, everyone that celebrates Valentine's Day. Hope you guys have a great day. Um, Wall Street's shadow boxers. I'm going to just shed some light on what goes on in Wall Street and how uh, if you ever corner them on something, they kind of just seem to change the rules or not apply them at all. Um, uh, shadow trading accounted for $2.75 billion <clears throat> in exchange-traded funds or ETF trades for more than a decade. 
the reason why this is interesting is because huh, it just makes sense, right? Uh, Wall Street watchdogs may have to start chasing shadows via, quote, shadow trades, end quote, conducted through anomalous exchange-traded funds. U.S. investors with insider information hmm, completed at least $2.75 billion worth of deals between 2009 and 2021, according to a new analysis from academic institutions in Latvia and Australia detailing the latest trick to sneak past regulatory insight, what they trade in the shadows. So first, let's break down the shadow trades. It'd be too obvious for top executives with insider information to trade directly in a company's stock right before a major development like a merger and acquisition announcement or M&A announcement. So instead, they trade stocks in competing businesses that are likely to be impacted by the news. Or they throw money into an ETF, an exchange traded fund, focused on a particular sector that possibly includes the target company itself. While insider information can result in, you know, just a mere $5 million fine and up to 20 years in federal prison, the legality of shadow trading is a lot more ambiguous. America's first case on the matter is still going through the courts with no legal precedent and barely any scrutiny. Those at the top have found a clever way to manipulate the system even more in their favor. The report, which was conducted by the Stockholm School of Economics in Riga and the University of Technology, Sydney, found that in roughly 3 to 6% of cases involving M&A announcements, ETF trades increased significantly in the five days before the news broke. The billions worth of shadow trades were mostly conducted in health technology and industrial sectors through ETFs such as iShares Expanded Tech Sector, which is BlackRock, Vanguard Health, and Vanguard Industrials. <clears throat> they say, quote, one can get a direct exposure to the company's share price via the ETF, but in a vehicle that is more subtle than trading the company's shares directly, helping reduce scrutiny and law enforcement, end quote, the report said. A well-timed trade. ETFs aside, the SEC, or Securities and Exchange Commission, is soon due to establish new rules to limit another oft-used avenue for insider trading, the 10B5-1 loophole, to prevent executives from trading shares of their companies with the benefit of non-public information, 10B5-1s were established to set timelines for trades far in advance to divorce them from major developments. But the plans are mostly hidden from the public, easy to adjust or cancel, and easy for executives to plan stock-shaking business moves around. By that nature, it's hard to prove when insider trading occurs. The maneuver accounted for at least 60% of insider trades in recent years, according to a Wall Street Journal's analysis. Beginning April 1st, the SEC aims to close the loophole by beefing up mandatory disclosures and requiring delays on when executives can start modifying their plans. Something tells us Wall Street will just find more loopholes. Great job, Griffin Kelly. Way to point this out. It happens all the time on other news and other articles. 
Anybody out there heard of ChatGPT? I have. It's like all the rave right now. So I thought I'd uh, read a really, I thought, thought-provoking article by uh, The Morning Brew. And they simply say, who would, they simply ask, who would ChatGPT vote for? So after weeks of asking chat GPT questions like what would a discussion of quantum physics between Kim Kardashian and SpongeBob sound like some users now have a more consequential query for the AI, which is stands for artificial intelligence for those that don't know. And the question is, would you vote Democrat An open AI chatbots responses on topics ranging from the 2020 presidential election to specific politicians, characters have some um, suspicious that it might not entirely be nonpartisan and even may exhibit left-leaning bias. That's got people worried about the social implications of a prejudiced algorithm writing news stories, policy proposals, and computer code. So let's dive into where the AI or artificial intelligence fits into our highly polarized political landscape. Signs of a biased bot. Huh. Interesting. There's a reason some conservatives are calling ChatGPT woke. Several users have alleged ChatGPT returned political responses to their queries. Uh, number one, a researcher fed it prompts like uh, a researcher fed it prompts from questionnaires designed to place respondents into political camps. According to that researcher, ChatGPT is a liberal supporter of legalized marijuana and military spending cuts, and a vehement opponent of abortion bans. In a more recent replication of the experiment, the chatbot appeared to have drifted to the center of the political spectrum. Number two, a viral tweet pointed out that ChatGPT refused to write a syncophanic poem about Donald Trump on the grounds that it was designed to avoid producing, quote, content that is partisan, biased, or political in nature, end quote but obliged when the same request was made for the current POTUS. ChatGPT judged it morally unacceptable to use a racial slur, even in a hypothetical scenario in which doing so was the only way to avert a nuclear war. But others contend that ChatGPT's supposed wokeness is only superficial. They point out that the chatbot can be easily tricked into churning out racist and sexist statements. Those concerned about AI-enabled bigotry claim that it's necessary for the tool to block certain outputs so it errs on the side of not harming marginalized groups. So what shapes ChatGTP's moral compass? While ChatGPT itself claims it's apolitical because it's not human, OpenAI CEO Sam Altman acknowledges that it has its shortcomings around bias. Experts say this probably originates from the data sets that are used to train the bot's algorithm. ChatGPT likely earned its chops by hoovering up some content from various news outlets, as well as Reddit and Twitter, websites hardly known as cradles of objectivity or toxicity-free zones, according to OpenAI. Conservative commentators see something more intentional. They claim that ChatGPT's apparent left-of-center proclivities reflect the values of folks that built and manually trained the tool as tech employees overwhelmingly support Democrats and tend to identify as liberals. The big picture, some consider these concerns overblown since ChatGPT is merely a word generator and unlikely to be called on to solve moral dilemmas with millions of lives at stake. 
But the AI's alleged biases present a challenge for the companies trying to harness the text generating prowess. The last thing these organizations want is for an automation tool to land them on the battlefield of the great culture wars. Thank you, Sam, over at Morning Brew for that interesting and thought-provoking article as this is going to hit the scene like no other. There's already a war between Microsoft, which has ChatGPT, and Google, which has Bard, which is interesting. Um, check it out. Google it. Look it up. Track it. We'll talk to you soon. On to the next subject. Most children stop being a half a birthday somewhere around the age of 12. Kids add and a half to make sure everyone knows they're closer to the next age than the last. When you're older and a half birthdays start making a comeback. In fact, starting at age 50, several birthdays and half birthdays are critical to understanding because they have implications regarding your retirement income. At age 50, workers in certain qualified retirement plans are able to begin making annual catch-up contributions in addition to their normal contributions. Those who participate in 401ks, 403bs, and 457 plans can contribute an additional $6,500 per year in 2022. I think that's bumped up to 7,000 in 2023. Those who participate in simple individual retirement accounts or simple IRAs or simple 401k plans can make catch-up contributions of up to $3,000 in 2022. And those who participate in traditional or Roth IRAs can set aside an additional $1,000 a year. So for, uh, for 2023, you can put in like $7,500 that's including the catch-up. So $6,500 plus $1,000 equals 7,500 bucks. At 59 and a half, uh, workers are able to start making withdrawals from qualified retirement plans without incurring a 10% federal income tax penalty. This applies to workers who have contributed to IRAs and employer-sponsored plans, such as 401k, 403b plans, and 457 plans are never subject to the 10% penalty. Keep in mind that distributions from traditional IRAs, 401k plans, and other employer-sponsored retirement plans are taxed as ordinary income. At age 62, workers are first able to draw Social Security benefits. However, if a person continues to work, those benefits will be reduced. The Social Security Administration will deduct $1 in benefits for every $2 an individual earns above an annual limit. In 2022, the income limit is $19,560. Age 65. At age 65, individuals can qualify for Medicare. The Social Security Administration recommends applying three months before reaching the age of 65. It's important to note that if you already are receiving Social Security benefits, you'll automatically be enrolled in Medicare Part A, which is for hospitalization, and Part B, medical insurance, without an additional application. Age 65 to 67. Between ages 65 and 67, individuals become eligible to receive 100% of their Social Security benefit. The age varies depending on birth year. Individuals 
born in 1955, for example, become eligible to receive 100% of their benefits when they reach the age of 66 years in two months. Those born in 1960 or later need to reach the age of 67 before they become eligible to receive full benefits. So at age 73, in most circumstances, once you reach the age of 73, you must begin taking required minimum distributions from a traditional individual retirement account and other defined contribution plans. You may continue to contribute to a traditional IRA past 70 and a half as long as you meet the earned income requirement. Understanding key birthdays may help you better prepare for certain retirement income and benefits. But perhaps more importantly, knowing key birthdays can help you avoid penalties that may be imposed if you miss a date. So if you have any questions regarding certain dates and times in life, uh, especially regarding retirement, give us a call at Northbound Wealth Management, 317-399-1107. Hey, this is Brent Foster, founder and CEO of Northbound Wealth Management. I just wanted to touch on a few tax updates, um, and I think you guys will find it uh, beneficial. So here we go. Uh, the standard deduction for 2023, these are allowable tax benefits for 2023. The standard deduction under the age of 65, married filing joint is $27,700. Single filers, $13,850. Married filers filing separate, $13,850. Heads of household, $20,800. So uh, age 65 or older, additional married or qualifying widow is $1,500. Single, $1,850. Um, jumping down to maximum child tax credit, if you have a child under the age of 17, it's $2,000 per child. Standard mileage deductions, for those of you who um, are into that and tracking that, business standard mileage rate is 62.5 cents per mile. Medical standard mileage rate is 22 cents. Moving standard mileage rate is 22 cents. And the charitable service standard mile rate is 14 cents. Let's see, uh, deductible IRA contributions. Um, if the taxpayer and the spouse are not covered by an employer-sponsored plan. If you're younger than the age of 50, that's uh, $6,500 is a limit. If you're older than 50 or 50 and older, that's $7,500. So that's a $1,000 catch-up contribution there uh, if you're over the age of 50. Maximum 401k, Employer contributions, if you're younger than 50, it's $22,500. And if you're older than 50, it's $30,000. So you have a catch-up contribution that you can make there. <clears throat> Self-employed medical insurance premium deduction is 100% deductible. Annual gift tax exclusion per person is $17,000 per person. Uh, estate tax exclusion is $12.92 million. So make sure you jot that down, uh, the tax uh, above that, if you don't do things properly, is substantial. Um, other tax items, so itemizable deductions for 2023. Among other items, they do include interest in taxes on your home, 
uninsured medical expenses above 7.5% of AGI or adjusted gross income, uninsured casualties attributable to a federally declared disaster above 10% of AGI, contributions to qualified charities, state and local income, property, and sales taxes totaling up to $10,000. See, there are benefit phase-out levels as well. None for the personal exemption, which was eliminated through 2025. Um, so we'll see what happens after 2025. Itemized deduction or piece limitation is limited through 2025. But the deductibility of IRA contributions for those covered by employer retirement plans, the $6,500 maximum contribution per taxpayer if 50 and older, the maximum is 7,500. There's a phase out level. And for married filing joint folks, that's a modified AGI of 116 to 136. That's 116,000 to $136,000 per year. Single, that's $73,000 to $83,000. Married filing separate, zero to $10,000. Head of household, 73,000 to $83,000. And then married filing joint, not covered by a pension plan, but the spouses, that's $218,000 to $228,000. Roth IRA eligibility maximum uh, is $6,500. That's non-deductible contribution. Uh, if you're 50 and older, the maximum is $7,500. Um, so keep that in mind. And the married filing joint uh, phase-out levels for the Roth eligibility 218,000 to $228,000 uh, for single filers, 138,000 to $153,000 married filing separate $0 head of household, 138,000 to $153,000. So just uh, as a reminder, modified AGI or adjusted gross income starts with your adjusted gross income and adds back certain tax exempt amounts, including any IRA deductions. So if you have any questions about where you land, you can give us a call or you can talk to a CPA. CPAs um, are certified to know this type of information and can help you with your uh, tax strategies um, as well. So <clears throat> there's a lot more to talk about uh, in regards to taxes. Um, I'll go over these few bullet points. Uh, but basically there's, there's a lot there as everybody's thinking about their taxes and, and getting those things filed and done by April 15th, um, unless you file extensions. But uh, reevaluate your long-term strategies, evaluate your tax and financial strategy for receiving discretionary and mandatory retirement planned distributions, rebalance investment portfolios and reevaluate the uses of your debt. Consider making gifts up to the annual gift tax exclusion. Evaluate passive loss exposure and potential investment shifts. If you have excess cash flow, consider how to invest those funds. Maybe it can help you save on your taxes. Optimize a mix of interest expense items. Consider making charitable contributions of property. Consider ways to fund your children's education and evaluate your mix of portfolio and passive income. <clears throat> 
So there's a lot to discuss around financial planning and tax strategies. If you have any questions on those, give us a call at Northbound Wealth Management, 317-399-1107. And uh, good luck with your taxes. We'll talk to you soon.